0: Fuck your reply guys. Please don't fuck your reply guys. Just listen to reply guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. Uh, did you have a good Thanksgiving, Julia?
1: I sure did. I went home to Massachusetts. Um, as many people saw, my dad immediately picked me up and was drinking a to-go cup of clam chowder (laughs) which was the most insane thing i've ever seen uh but also very in line with who he is as a person and people really seemed people i'm glad that i snapped a pic of it because i feel like people wouldn't understand it
0: (laughs) what does what does a to-go cup of clam chowder look like oh it's just like a little soup cup
1: like a little like paper soup cup oh also i i can't believe i should have told you about this yeah george conway replied to my tweet george conway kelly ann's husband is the newest is my newest reply guy oh my god um and he was like he made some joke about how it's like i bet that's wicked good shout out or something like that and i looked at george conway's twitter account which i had never had occasion to do before and he's like a resistance lib
0: he's a resistance lib yeah. I thought he was like a Republican. I thought he was like a never Trump Republican. I don't know. He like
1: <sighs> more Quint was tweeting about this, that she's like afraid that all of his like dump dunking on Trump and like being, he retweets like near a Tandon all the time. He's like, that's why I think he's like a, a resistance lib
0: resistance. Libs love near a Tandon.
1: And so yeah, Maura Quint was like, I'm really afraid that all of this back and forth between Kellyanne and George is just some weird sex thing that they're into. (laughs) Yeah. Like George keeps like going on background on all these different news shows and like just completely shitting on the administration. I don't know. It's weird. But anyways, George Conway, George Conway, my newest reply guy.
0: I heard that Kellyanne Conway and George Conway are separated. I don't know if that's from a reliable source. I would believe it. I I mean, it would be hard on a marriage. He like like quote tweets
1: her and like dunks on her. so weird. So that's, it's either the relationship is over or it's definitely a sex thing it's a it's gotta be it's gotta be a weird kink that i don't understand um i don't know who is that james carville and his wife are also oh, yeah mary Mad- <laughs> madeline mary madeline what? i don't know i don't know what her name is but she's some like big-time republican he's a
0: democrat um oh and then we have mika and joe Oh my god. Yeah. Joe Morning Joe. Joe Scarborough. Yeah. They're really horrible. Uh yeah, they're bad. I I guess Joe is still a Republican and I think Mika is a resistance lip, but they're they're like the king and queen of uh civility fetishes every oh time there's god. something like <laughs> like when the booing happened of Trump at his sports uh. game, Joe was like <laughs> How can we ha- you know, <laughs> just all this fucking
1: hand wringing. Their their kink is that they like uh, undress and say like I respect you even though I don't agree with you. <laughs> Gross.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. The thing um, about resistance libs is uh resistance libs hate resistance of any kind. Uh resistance libs they hate protesters. Uh they hate uh Antifa. Uh they hate um bernie sanders uh (laughs) they they really they hate anything that is potentially alienating to the mythical white male voter in wisconsin
1: exactly yeah i love that we're i love that that's where we've landed again as a party just debating over who would vote for that mythical obama trump voter i have no idea you
0: know what i think is really important to the mythical white voter in wisconsin is you know what he's had enough of malarkey i think you're right
1: (laughs) he's had enough he's had enough malarkey
0: he's up to his ears in malarkey and he's (laughs) he's waiting for someone to run on a platform to not have malarkey at all some would even say he's waiting for someone to write no malarkey on the side of a bus (laughs)
1: uh we are of course talking about former vice president joe biden uh the man who has made uh malarkey for whatever reason a cornerstone of his campaign um he had a he had a banner week he um actually was not really on twitter that much this week i find i told kate this that when i'm at all enjoying myself in my life i do not tweet that much, <laughs> so um yeah joe biden uh bit his wife's finger i saw a picture of that i have a hard time watching any of the videos of joe biden so i but i did see the photo where he was just dr jill's finger was fully in his mouth and that was more than i ever want to see i bet they have some weird sex stuff too
0: yeah i mean <laughs> she did she did give that whole speech about how she understands her husband's not the most exciting but sometimes you gotta just take what you can get
1: which (laughs) honestly i love i love a woman who's a realist
0: yeah um yeah he's also had some incredible moments throughout the past a couple weeks somebody at a rally um asked him why he doesn't support (gasps) medicare for all and he said you should just vote for bernie sanders yeah um and then he thought that
1: that was a good idea like he thought that he was being like cool and punk by saying that i have no idea why like he thought that that was the things that joe biden thinks are politically advantageous really just stump me again and again.
0: Well, and then also he there were some immigration activists that showed up at one of his oh, yeah. rallies and uh he one of the activists asked Biden if he would stop deportations and Biden's told him that he should just vote for Trump. So Biden's out here stumping for Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. I hope that he drops at least the Trump part. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, that one, the
1: last one doesn't even make sense.
0: Yeah, I, I actually... No, that doesn't make sense at all. No, there's no... There's no through line Like, there. even in the troll logic, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, it was... I, I, I was trying to think about what Biden is doing with this no malarkey shit. And I, I think that there's this thread where he's just, like, so confident that he's going to win that he's just trolling yeah. at this point. No, I think... Yeah,
1: it's almost... it there is an arrogance about it just the kind of thumb in the eye to everyone else and you know it's it's that whole thing all over again where uh, like we talked about on our Rahm Emanuel episode where like David Plough and Ram Emanuel called the like the left wing of the Democratic Party bedwetters and we're just like constantly saying derisive things about them
0: <sighs> yeah uh should we talk about this dumb 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 thing that uh our uh our friend of the pod pete Buttigieg, did this week i i would love to okay so pete Buttigieg, um really a perennial reply guy of the mm-hmm. week just a constant honorary reply guy of the week uh he released this ad um attacking without saying their names bernie sanders and elizabeth warren for uh proposing to make college free and the grounds on which he did that is is making college free even for the kids of millionaires um snooze yeah let's talk for a minute about why this is so dumb
1: all right first of all pete babe (laughs) it's free public college for i yeah i believe and so most of the universities that you're thinking of that super wealthy people will send their kids to are not public universities. And if they are, they will be paying for them in the form of taxes. Yes. That is how this works. This is not free for them. It's just making them pay in a different
0: way. Yeah. My friend, Johan Miranda had a really funny tweet, like a kind of meme format tweet, uh, if I was worried about rich kids going to college for free, I would simply tax their parents. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of a great distillation of that.
1: Absolutely. And someone else made a good point that the idea that a given social good should not be universal and free at the point of service because a rich person might benefit from it is an argument against fire departments, public libraries, trash collection, K-12 through public education, roads, sidewalks, parks, etc. Oh, who was that? And that was uh, Matt Hogan. Hogan, uh, at M.J. Hogan, um, and I just thought that was such a good point, and yeah, there's so many, I mean, when you think about it, universal public education is actually one of the most radical socialist programs that we have in this country, and I mean, y- you can make an argument that uh, every single day, there are the Betsy DeVos's of this world who are trying to dismantle it, but it endures, and you know, I went to public school, Yes, you went to public school. I did all um, the way all the
0: way through. I went same to, K through twelve. Well, no, I I went to Lutheran school when I was little, uh, but in starting seventh grade, I went to uh, public school, and I went to University of California Berkeley. Hell yeah, yeah which was a public school. So under uh, Sanders and Warren's proposal, that school would be free. Right. Uh, you know, it was. It was definitely, I, I think it was in the maybe five, six range a year. And like, then less than a decade later, it was like twice that, you know, it's yeah. gotten really, really
1: expensive. UMass was like 11000 a year when I was looking, I think.
0: Yeah, it's fucked up. I mean, means testing in general is, so there's, you know... There's probably some people who know this already, uh, but we'll, we're going to give a quick little explanation of what means testing is um, because it's bad. <laughs> um, so means testing is basically saying that you only qualify for a benefit if you make under a certain amount of money. Um, so some examples of that um, are uh, TANF, which is the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, um, what used to be just called Welfare, uh, food stamps, Medicaid—so they're all income-based and asset-based—and there is like a, a few problems with that. Which, as you noted, uh, Republicans and even centrist Democrats um, are constantly trying to get rid of these programs because, and, and they're able to easily do so because it's it's really easy to make the case uh to people that like oh you know you're you know you're struggling but like here you are subsidizing poor people or whatever and you can use these means testing programs to stoke resentment you know versus like nobody resents the fire department or roads or whatever because it's like yeah it's for everybody you know um and also people sometimes don't apply for them because it's hard to it can be hard to get all your documentation in order. There's just like a lot of barriers to entry, you know? So for things like Medicaid, like there's definitely people who qualify that just don't, like they don't have all of their taxes lined up. Well, there's also
1: like these kind of invisible caps on the programs as they currently stand. I listened to, I think it was on Fresh Air once uh, that a woman who was like a, a scholar about, you know, welfare and the history of welfare programs in this country talked about how only a fraction, as you said, only a fraction of the people in this country who qualify for welfare actually receive it. This was absolutely something in you know, the nineties and early two thousands that Democrats, a lot of centrist Democrats tried to take a swing at, um, under the guise of quote unquote welfare reform.
0: Clinton. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Clinton won. creepy Clinton. Well, I don't know. I guess you could (laughs) look, I'm not debating the listeners about this.
1: (laughs) Bill Clinton. (laughs) No, but, uh, but it's, it's mostly because Ronald Reagan, when he was governor kind of stoked the idea of the, the welfare queen and just someone who was, uh, you know, kind of... Uh,
0: which is a racial dog whistle.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's... I mean, the uh, the image that it was meant to evoke was of a black woman who was just like extorting the welfare system, which is just nonsense. Um, but... In my perfect America, obviously, we would have these, like, robust social safety net programs. And I think there is a place for uh, government assistance programs that, you know, are like welfare and food stamps, perhaps. But ideally, we wouldn't need those if we were giving people what they needed already. Some universal proposals, like Andrew Yang's UBI, Is there is like a libertarian sort of conservative bent of like wanting to eliminate anything that disproportionately benefits underprivileged or economically challenged people like lower class, working class, poor
2: people. Yeah,
0: I agree with you. I mean, I think the kind of standard democratic socialist belief about this is that like things that are human Necessities, yeah, should be things that everybody has, you know. Totally, uh, housing, education, um, you know, u- utilities. Yeah, uh, you know, th- th- this is. It's not to say that you know there's no place for uh, assistance for people who need it, but you know, it's just generally means testing uh, is a worse way of doing things yeah. and leads to big cutbacks in the program and lots of political resentment and stuff. So, you know, that's part of the reason we like that. A lot of, you know, most of Sanders proposals are not means tested like Medicare for all it's for all. I can just hear Bernie's voice yelling for all, you know, (laughs) because, but you know, college should be free. Uh, this is a totally disingenuous ad. And, you know, Pete is he's in his proposal. He's not even saying, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, he, he would have like Sanders and Warren's proposal, but like n- cut millionaires out of it. Like his his cap is like one hundred thousand dollars for a family, um, which as AOC pointed out on Twitter, that's not a rich family. That's no. two parents making fifty thousand dollars a year. That's
1: literally like my those were my that was my parents. And that yeah. actually is the reason why I didn't qualify for a lot of financial aid, because that is very similar to the current system.
0: This, there's so much other stuff to say about the student loan crisis, but th- I mean, the the way that college is right now is just it's really, really, really expensive. It's untenable. I mean, it is
1: absolutely absurd. There's no, there's just absolutely no reason that college should cost sixty thousand plus dollars a year for anyone. No, it's it's really, really terrible. Um, and it's because all of these universities have people fresh out of business school coming in, teaching, quote unquote, teaching the administration how to run the schools like a business, like a for-profit business.
0: You want to know what the worst college I've ever heard of is?
1: Is it ICE University? (laughs) It's ICE University. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a second (laughs) to realize where you were going with that. (laughs) Um,
0: ICE Immigrations and Customs Enforcement set up a fake university Uh, in Michigan Uh, it was called the University of Farmington and they went to extensive lengths to lure foreign students to this university they had uh, they said it was accredited on the website and then also on the Department of Homeland Security website uh, they said that the school was accredited so students applied came here um believing that they had valid student visas paid thousands of dollars in tuition that has not been returned to anybody um ice arrested and deported most of the students um there's a a small percentage that are protesting it um they even arrested students so the ICE's line with this one is, well, the students should have known it was a scam because there were no classes. So there were many <laughs> students that were emailing. They didn't know there was no classes until they got there. And there were students that were emailing to say like, hey, you know, what the what the hell is up with these classes? You know, like, where is the classes? Uh, and they were just given the runaround by school administrators who were really ICE agents. Um, and some of them transferred out. To other schools that were real schools, they were still arrested, um, which is so
1: it is not illegal to come to the United States to go to school from another country.
0: Not only did they have this fake university, they like they they hired like hundreds of people to recruit people to come to this university. I mean, it's How is just this legal. <laughs> it's, it's insane. This is one of the most, I mean, this is just sadistic prank. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's a prank because I mean, obviously the consequences for people's lives. I mean, these people, many of whom just believe they were going to school were thrown in ice detention, but it does track
1: because I do find that all of the worst people I've ever known have been really into pranks.
0: Yeah. I guess this is what ice uh how this, I, ice pranks. This is America's most racist home videos. Oh yes. god,
1: that's so horrible. Yeah, so anyways, yeah, um, they, guys, they,
0: I don't know if you know this, but ICE not good. Yeah, they arrested like 250 students and Jeez. I mean like there was like e- again, like even if the students like went and like looked on the Department of Homeland Security's website to make sure it was real, it said it was real there. Uh, they were even if they realized it wasn't real and they transferred out of the school to another school, they were still arrested and deported. I mean, it's just, it is so fucked up. Um, And, you know, I think one thing that's important to note is this fake university was created under the Obama administration. This is not a Trump thing. What? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, kind of a touch circling back, circling back um, to the, the man of, Malarkey, Joe Biden, you know, like when he was called out by immigration activists at his rally, like the Obama administration did really, really, really fucked up shit. Um, and they deported more
1: people than any other administration. Yeah.
0: They built the cages that tr- Trump is. I mean, they put people in cages too, but the infrastructure. The, the concentration camps that uh, we're seeing you know massive amounts of people in now that was a creation of the Obama administration and um at least you know I feel really strongly that we need to just straight up abolish ice because yeah as we've seen with like uh, attempts to like reform police like it's also, not it's not easy to reform a sick system like that
1: and also ice didn't
0: even exist
1: a number like ice is a fairly recent creation
0: Yep, it's just like the department september 11th yeah and it's just like the P- department of homeland security we do not stand
1: we do not stand and in
0: fact we want to abolish we want to
1: abolish ICE. Yeah. um yeah we should t- talk a little bit about uh about our good friend barack barack obama oh
0: yeah so Barack. i
1: it's it really does pain me to see his turn in this way, or perhaps it is who he has always been, but it really, it pains me because I remember the promise that he ran on in 2008. And it was very much bolstered by a forward facing progressive vision. And then he just immediately abandoned the left wing of the party. Um I think it is, you know, I really, I didn't know as much as I know now back then. Um, I couldn't even vote in the 2008 election. Um, but yeah, it's pretty, I, I said this uh, a few weeks ago, but yeah, it, we should have known because one of the first things he did was <laughs> appoint Rahm Emanuel to be his chief of staff.
0: Yeah. I mean, he,
1: he so basically know. Obama's in the news this week because he like, it, there is word that he might in some way, like intervene to try to stop the party from moving too far left and in fact he has said that he is like concerned about the party moving too far left
0: yeah he said he would intervene to stop bernie sanders and he also hates elizabeth warren personally (laughs) Uh, i mean yeah
1: so does rom as we discussed well
0: yeah because of her work establishing the cfpb and her opposition to uh geithner yeah um and you know She went up against uh, Rahm Emanuel and Obama um, in a way that I think permanently left a lot of hard feelings and not just hard feelings like she exposed a lot of the corruption that they were up to, you know, called them out on uh, giving all this money to banks without holding the banks to account and uh the famous quote why are you pissing in our face yeah exactly yeah (laughs) about her you know and then he so obama said and this is in politico we'll put it in the show notes uh that he if sanders if is on track to be the nominee uh that he will do what he can to stop it but i guess you know first of all i i can't believe that this is something that they wanted printed you know i mean um i don't think that it went particularly well for them to uh, like the, the way that the DNC put their finger on the scale last time. There's a lot of people that still have really hard feelings about it, you know, and the fact that the democratic establishment is still doing that. It's like, at least try to hide it a little bit better. You guys, you know, Um, in a, 2017 yeah. or late 2016 I don't remember which one uh there was the DNC who the race for who was going to be the DNC chair and mm-hmm. uh progressives really wanted Keith Ellison, Keith Ellison and Obama really put his finger on the scale for Perez you know which was unfortunate because that would have been I think uh, an olive branch to a lot of more progressive members of the democratic party
1: to to Perez's credit. He was like almost not confirmed for his, um, uh, for his seat in the Obama administration because he was so far left, but that is just in comparison to the rest of the, the administration. So obviously for context, you know, that's, he was the furthest left of an otherwise, center-left administration
0: yeah i mean it's you know we know that the establishment wants to stop sanders and warren um but it's it's kind of hard to i mean like we can also see them trying their ideas right like deval patrick probably obama's idea probably obama probably obama's idea to stop warren um or maybe even is that explicitly true has that been i mean well it's
1: it's pretty transparent Obama and Deval Patrick have been friends for a long time. And there are some very stupid people who think that Deval Patrick is kind of the heir to the, uh, the Obama coalition, even though he is an out of touch billionaire himself, even though he had like this, um, kind of sort of rags to riches story. He, Worked, I believe, in he may still work for Bain Capital, which is Mitt Romney's company. Like, why in what world do you think that there is any appetite in the Democratic Party for a billionaire who works for Bain Capital? Actually, no, Patrick is not a billionaire, but he is a multi, multi millionaire. Um, Bloomberg's a billionaire. Bloomberg is, I mean, the two of them, the two of them entering the race in the last few weeks is is very transparently because two of the three of the front runners are railing against billionaires.
0: Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. So we know that the establishment wants to stop Sanders and Warren, but this is the best they got, you know, i know. De- Deval Patrick, oh. and he, Michael Bloomberg <laughs> Michael Bloomberg.
1: Um Deval Patrick is such a wet blanket, too. He has yeah. no personality. Like he has he doesn't even have like one one thousandth of barack obama's charisma yeah he was never an organizer he doesn't have any like grassroots um history he was he had kind of a disastrous governorship in massachusetts which then led us to now we have a republican governor in massachusetts yeah did
0: you hear when he went to morehouse there were only two people that showed up for his speech i believe it two they had to cancel it but yeah <laughs> so i don't know i mean i i think for me this this makes me optimistic because i'm like if this is the plan no, to stop I feel, sanders i feel that way then it, I, it doesn't seem like the plan is going well and obviously they're scared you know no obviously i i totally i totally
1: feel that and i I think, yeah, these very late editions of people trying to buy their way into the primary. I mean, you have to think of uh, Tom Steyer, too, who's just buying up TV ads. Yeah. Again, and uh, Michael Bloomberg, I think, uh, set the record for highest spending in one week of campaigning, something like 55 million dollars yeah, or something.
0: There is no support for him and it's one ju- week.
1: By the way, that is exactly how much money it would take to fix the water in Flint.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely disgusting. Um it's yeah, it's appalling that someone can just I hope buy their way into the primary in this yeah. way without having any support really. But I mean if you look at like what this means for us, I there's Definitely, nobody who is gonna go from uh, Bernie to Bloomberg. No. Oh, okay. Actually,
1: can I can I just say that yeah. I was at I was at Thanksgiving. Um, we went over to my dad's friend's house for dessert, and he literally said, "I am undecided between Bernie and Michael Bloomberg." Oh my god! I can't believe this is your, da- your no, dad. Your no, my dad's friend. Your dad's friend. And I said, I I like I just had to take a minute. I was like, I'm sorry. Okay, they're both is it that you just like older Jewish men? (laughs) Is that your only criteria? (laughs) Um. Just irrespective of, I was like, how, how, how is that who you're deciding between? And he was like, you think they're that different? I was like, yes.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, you know, one of the ways that the needle is moving uh, aside from, you know, I mean, it's, it's awesome that we have, A a socialist candidate and another very progressive candidate uh, in the presidential race. But, you know, there's also races uh, all across the country for other offices. I got to speak to someone when I was in San Francisco um, who is. Running against Nancy Pelosi, he's primarying her. Heard His of name, her? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David Specter refers to her as Queen of impeachment No, 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 Mother of impeachment Queen of Shade, Queen of Shade, <laughs> Queen of Shade, Mother people, of Impeachments, Nancy love, Pelosi. People
1: love Queen of Shade for her. Yeah,
0: uh, but you know she opposes medicare for all she opposes the green new deal uh she just recently you know signed just- off on reauthorizing the patriot act what girl why girl why so it's uh, a very nice smart man from san francisco um named shahid butar uh is primarying her um and uh he is a human rights attorney. Um, he's a longtime organizer. He's a democratic socialist, and we had a really good conversation. Um, I am excited for you to hear it. Uh, you will notice that the sound in this conversation is a little bit different because we recorded outside in a cafe in San Francisco, and you'll hear a little ambient noise. But I think it's pretty fun. Um, and he was just so lovely. I, you know, I think that. I mean, obviously, it'd be very, very hard to beat Nancy Pelosi, but it would be an incredible AOC-style upset. And I, you know, I just can't emphasize enough like what a a great vibe I get <laughs> of this guy. He's obviously someone that's running for office because he really cares about Medicare for all, housing green new deal i you know i just i would really love to see him win and uh i think you will enjoy this conversation um before we go to our interview just want to remind you to rate and review uh that really helps us um subscribe to the podcast that really helps us we're just trying to get the word out um more people come to the show each week and uh it's so exciting yeah we, we re- love we love your feedback yeah so. we love it so um thank you so much and uh enjoy our interview with shahid Buttar. Thanks. Hello, I am here in San Francisco, and I am so glad to be back in the Bay Area, not only to see friends, but also because today I get to sit down with a very special guest uh, on the Reply Guys podcast, Shahid Buttar. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me on, Kate.
0: So you're running against Nancy Pelosi. I am indeed. That is amazing. Uh, what inspired you to want to primary Speaker Pelosi?
2: I'm a constituent. Of Speaker Pelosi's, I've lived here in San Francisco on and off for 20 years. Uh, And during that entire time, I've witnessed not only my voice, but that of a city that I love very much misrepresented in Washington. I was part of the movement that was challenging, for instance, Bush's invasion of Iraq. And I saw Speaker Pelosi enable that invasion and continue to fund it. I watched her undermine uh, executive accountability for CIA torture by helping Enable a cover up that continues to this day, and I spent time in Washington trying to advance executive accountability principles that she's actively impeded. Uh, same story on surveillance. I spent the better part of a decade fighting a mass surveillance regime that she is an architect of. Um, I've seen her defend a corporate predatory so called healthcare model that kills Americans every day, and I think that that's frankly a human rights abuse. I've seen her fund human rights abuses by a Uh, Kleptocrat in the White House She gave Trump four and a half billion dollars For concentration camps I've seen Speaker Pelosi impose GOP fiscal austerity rules On an otherwise progressive Congress I've seen Speaker Pelosi actively Support the Trump administration's Foreign policy And from you know any one of those issues, frankly, would be enough yeah. to leave me outraged. And uh, the very long story short is that my outrage eclipsed my sense of self-preservation. And that's why I ran last year and, you know, it worked out pretty well. And with the momentum we established in the last cycle, you know, we got more votes in 2018 than anybody challenging Pelosi from the left in a primary in a decade. And yeah, meager to finish the job.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, it's funny because I think when I was less involved in um, activism and just read a lot less about politics, like, to me, Nancy Pelosi seemed like a progressive hero, um, especially remembering, like, her fight to push through the ACA, you know, it seemed like, okay, this is a person on our side, you know, but then the more that we've read about it, the more we've realized, ah. Actually this is this person is not on our side.
2: <laughs> well she shifted a lot too. I mean to be perfectly fair, I think there was an era of her representation when she was fairly progressive. I mean she came to Washington in the eighties under Reagan and she co founded the Progressive Caucus. She said then at the time in like in the early nineties, you know, there's video of her supporting universal health care. The irony, which is not entirely unpredictable in fact it's entirely predictable is that as she has gained stature in washington and ascended through the ranks of party leadership she has increasingly identified with the party and defended her perception of the party's interests rather than her constituents and it's not just the fact that the party has eclipsed her constituents in terms of what she thinks about it is also the fact that her assessment of the party's interest is so profoundly inaccurate and wrong.
0: Yeah, she's all about holding the center.
2: Holding the center and continuing executive aggrandizement. She's actively, repeatedly from context context after context, she actively enables executive secrecy, executive fiat, and she does this as the leader of an independent branch of government charged with checking and balancing the executive branch. And that fealty to executive aggrandizement, to me, is constitutionally offensive beyond the politics. And I think you're right that, you know, from healthcare to climate policy, um, you know, her attitude with respect to fossil fuel extraction, like our energy policy, um, any of the industrial issues, Speaker Pelosi carries water for Wall Street. You know, she advances the interests of corporations and... That's bad in itself. I am very alarmed by the threat to the republic represented by the erosion of congressional independence, congressional oversight, uh, the erosion of particularly the investigative capacity of Congress to unearth executive secrets. If I can chase a rabbit there for yeah, a second. absolutely. So, you know, at the moment, Speaker Pelosi is getting a fair amount of credit from some voices for showing up for an impeachment process that it took her the better part of a year to show up for. And I'm proud to have beaten the drum on impeachment for months before she finally moved forward. And I do have concerns that even now that she has shown up for a limited process, what she has enabled is designed to fail, particularly because it does not include, it affirmatively excludes all the violations of the Emoluments Clause. That's yeah. Right? This is the clause in the Constitution that prohibits self-enrichment at public expense. And all this president has done in office is attempt to enrich himself at public expense. I mean, governance is not even a thing that he's into.
0: Well, let's be fair. He's done some other terrible things too. Indeed. <laughs> he's taken short breaks from enriching himself to hurt people in a variety of ways, to hurt the environment. Let's it, not sell him short. No, no,
2: fair enough. Yeah. I, but I would say, I mean, <laughs> to press the point, you know, and even within the corners of the sats I fear that even even those hateful things, he can still find some way to twist into a profit for himself. So <laughs> Uh, but yes, to your, to your point, he, he has certainly been um, uh, useless in other contexts. <laughs> but, but the point that the impeachment inquiry doesn't include any of his acts of attempted self-enrichment at public expense, I think is, is problematic for lots of reasons. The first is it resigns the issue that is most likely to flip Republican votes in the Senate because nothing enrages the right-wing base like their tax dollars being misappropriated, right? That's why they get enraged about welfare queens. Yeah. Uh, right? And the idea that the worst welfare queen of all is in the White House. And, and all the facts are in the public domain. It's not going to take a crazily intensive investigation. You don't need a Mueller investigation to just lay out every dime of taxpayer money he's put in his pocket. And we could have those hearings for months, right? And they will, they will flip Republican votes in the Senate. Another reason why it's really important to include the emoluments clause, as Speaker Pelosi has affirmatively refused to do, is because it sets a precedent either way. Either that A as a president, you can steal from the public, which is the precedent that she is helping set by not investigating. Or you set a precedent that as a president, you may not steal from the public. And that's the precedent that including emoluments would set. And whether it's for the future, thinking about the precedent, whether it's for the current, thinking about flipping votes in the Senate, or whether it's just for the constitution and the principle of it, in each of these dimensions, uh, I see Speaker Pelosi still, even after a year of delay, refusing to show up for work. And and maybe one last piece here, just to like complicate this even further. She's getting credit for pursuing executive accountability based on the findings of a whistleblower from the intelligence community, right? Right. And what the whistleblower showed was illegal foreign, an, an illegal invitation to foreign interference in a U.S. election. That it is illegal. It is criminal. Full stop. The president should go down for it. But. Speaker Pelosi, at the same time that she's relying on a whistleblower's finding, she endorses a statutory regime that discriminates against whistleblowers from the intelligence community and denies them the statutory protections available to whistleblowers and other agencies, meaning that she continues to silence whistleblowers even while relying on one's findings for this limited, long overdue process that she's pursuing and... Just to tie a neat bow on all of this, this whistleblower's findings could have hit the press a year ago if Speaker Pelosi did not unilaterally impose a set of House rules that deny every member of Congress except for her hand-chosen deputies access to staff with security clearance. And there are many members of Congress who clamor for the opportunity to see behind the classification wall. The reason they can't is not because of President Trump. It's not because of President Obama. It's not because of President Bush. It's because of Speaker Pelosi. And, you know, if there's anything that enrages me more than the corporate co-optation of the supposed opposition party, it is the aggrandizement of the executive branch and the threat of fascism rising under our feet. And that's ultimately why I'm running for office is to fight fascism and defend democracy at a time when our democracy is in crisis.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of people are just becoming conscious of the corporate co-optation of the Democratic Party and are getting really excited about progressive campaigns like yours. I think that there's also a lot of other people that see a campaign like yours and think, wow, this is like really great, but there's no way that we can ever beat these really entrenched incumbents. And I was wondering how you see a path to that.
2: For me, it's like every day that goes by, I increasingly have the opposite reaction, which is that I occasionally feel bad for Speaker Pelosi that <laughs> she has so painted herself into a corner. And another way to think about that is that I don't think you can help the Trump administration as much as she does and still get away with it in 2019. And ultimately, my job over the next year is to share with San Franciscans the case for how she's undermined our city's values on the environment, how she's undermined our city's values. In immigrant rights and sanctuary, how she's undermined our city's values in peace and justice and the service of militarism and racism and capitalism. And frankly, it hasn't been that difficult. I mean, I, I literally can't walk outside in San Francisco anymore without someone before I make it home, yelling out something like beat Pelosi, or I'm so excited about your campaign or you know, too, yeah. mangling my name from across the street. <laughs> that, that happened this morning. I was running in the park, you know, and like getting recognized. And, and that's, it's not even confined to San Francisco, frankly. I've had that experience across the Bay Area and beyond even. And it says to me that the city is hungry for real representation, and I think has been for a long time. I mean, I remember 20 years ago being active. We laid 20,000 people, myself and 500 other students from Stanford were a part of it. We laid siege to the city of San Francisco nonviolently the morning after Bush invaded Iraq. And for- I think I was there. Right on. Yeah. That was an incredible day.
0: Yeah. (laughs) March
2: 23rd, I think, 2003. And in fact, I was not not far from here where we are now. We're in Soma, south of Market, and and the uh, Affinity Group cluster from Stanford had uh, taken responsibility for locking down two of the Highway 80 exit non-ramps in Soma and being a part of assertive organized, decentralized and uncompromising street resistance, advancing timeless principles like the dignity of human life in the face of corporate fossil fuel extraction for profit, you know, democracy at the barrel of a gun. Yes. I think I've scrambled a lot of hyphens in there, but the, the idea to, to have seen Speaker Pelosi even then misrepresenting our city's voice and you know from issue after issue one of the very first cases i had when i graduated from school and i'd moved to washington to fight the right wing one of my first cases was representing jason west who was at the time the mayor of new paltz new york and so we had the Oh, i've been there too right i'm not just
0: trying to list places i've been (laughs) but i have been in new paltz and i was protesting the iraq war the day after it started in san francisco so i don't know other places you list We'll see. We've
2: spent a lot of time yeah. in the same places. And New Pulse is an amazing place for lots of reasons. If you're into rock climbing, it's a lovely place to go. And in the early 2000s, it became somewhat famous in that the mayor at the time, my client, Jason West, was the second official in the country to recognize the right of consenting adults to marry a partner of their choice. And he was the only official in the country at any point criminally prosecuted for supporting LGBT marriage equality, and I'm proud as a cis-hetero Muslim lawyer to have stood in solidarity with my neighbors advancing human rights at a time when most people think we lost ground, and I think we have generally lost ground in the last generation. That's one of the few areas that we've gained ground. And I was a very early advocate in that struggle because I recognize that civil rights are intersectional for the ten years it took us after that to secure marriage equality. Speaker Pelosi was nowhere to be found. No, she was the Speaker of the House for, at some point during that period, and she refused to acknowledge the rights of my neighbors and while I was fighting for them in the courts, and I think that that contrast is one that San Francisco you know as people learn about the alternative that we present seems to be very excited about. And I think San Francisco has yearned for a voice that would stand in favor of the principles that Dr. King espoused, you know, challenging militarism, challenging racism, challenging uh, capitalism, and and promoting human rights. And that's what my career has been about. It's what my advocacy and my activism and my art have all been about. And it's what our campaign's about. It's exactly the voice that I want to bring to Congress.
0: I think that a lot of people... in line with progressives from a values perspective i think that there's a certain amount of people and i have a lot of friends like this who are like yeah i believe all this stuff but i just don't think that it will ever be possible to do anything like medicare for all or a green new deal because even the majority of the democratic party doesn't support it what is the pathway to some of these progressive wins when so much of the Democratic Party doesn't even stand with us.
2: Right. And and, and just to, you know, uh, reinforce your question and then t- try to answer it, <clears throat> that co-optation of the majority of the Democratic Party is nothing new. I mean, Dr. King himself lamented it in writing. The letter from Birmingham jail essentially is an ode to centrist white moderates who refuse to show up in solidarity with frontline communities that have long been bearing the brunt of police violence, with environmental racism, uh, with all of the intersecting evils that he talked about <clears throat> and the many intersections between them. The, you know, moving into answering your question, I think the way, one way that we're going to win, not just this campaign for this seat, but the movement for the, these paradigm-changing policies— is through generational transition, and fortunately, that's not anything that anyone can stop. You know, centrists can stand. I don't know.
0: I think uh, big tech will try to stop it. I definitely see some weird kind of uh, mortality ending things. <laughs> Eugenics. <laughs> For e- Elon Musk will figure yeah. out something. I don't know. <laughs> as
2: long as we manage to keep Elon <laughs> Musk away from any genocidal business models, <laughs> yes. we should at least then have a shot at witnessing. <laughs> I think another an wise. Inexorable generational transition, and the boomers are, uh, you know, transitioning into another life. And for better or worse, millennials are already the largest generational voting block in the country. We know they're the most progressive generation the republic's ever seen.
0: Yeah, because we are. Uh not in a situation where it would make sense at all for us to not be progressive.
2: Right. I mean, millennials were the first generation. And I'm sort of in the middle of Gen X, and I also, to some extent, got screwed by the willingness of our predecessors to go along to get along. Yeah. And and Nancy Pelosi is a perfect illustration of this. She came to Washington under Reagan, and she learned his lessons. And that's why she thinks we can't have Medicare for all, and it's why she's unwilling to fight for it, because she constructs the landscape informed by a bygone era that long ago faded.
0: Yeah. And that keeps failing right now in real time.
2: Because she doesn't recognize the historical moment that we're in. Yeah. And, and I think few people do. You know, to me, as as an immigrant Muslim constitutional lawyer, it's been very hard to overlook the rise of fascism. It's been obvious to me in sh- stark relief, not since 2016, but since 2001. Yes. And... Seen through that lens, particularly the co optation of the Obama administration reveals itself as a historical moment of profound danger because the bipartisanization, if I can call it that, of the national security state that Bush and Cheney created, the, the bipartisan endorsement of mass surveillance, of torture with impunity, of preventive detention, of basically a constitution free regime, authoritarianism ultimately. It represents a threat not only to all of our rights and freedoms here in the United States, but the legacy of which we were once very proud. And it's the legacy that brought my family here. You know, I'm an immigrant to the United States. My family moved around the world twice. And we came here for liberty and for opportunity. And I'm not willing to let those values slip through our fingers on my watch. And even if Speaker Pelosi has been entirely too willing to do exactly that.
0: So what does it look like? So you win the election and like what is the actual path towards let's say medicare for all look like which i know is is a big issue for your campaign right yeah, single payer healthcare so it's a mix of unseating more centrist incumbents who take money from health insurance companies and big pharma and then also making other incumbents so afraid that they side with the people instead of the corporations? Is That
2: that and replacing the ones who are unwilling to stand with the future. There's a c- particular congressional district in Georgia that illustrates this. John Ossoff ran as a centrist I in a special that. election. I remember that. Vote Right?
0: Your ass off. Yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and he,
2: he lost that election as a centrist. Yes. Uh, the person who ran for that seat after him, her name is Lucy McBath, she won it as a progressive. Amazing. And this is in Georgia, which shows that we can win seats with a bold progressivism that we cannot win with a timid moderate, mealy-mouthed centrism. And when the Speaker Pelosi's of the world tell us that we have to hew to the center to guard exurban Democratic seats that are otherwise vulnerable to Republican challengers, it reflects her inability, unwillingness, uh, what have you, her refusal to acknowledge the current moment. And the current moment is such that, and this is the fallacy, centrists think that because we have the right on one hand and we have the left on the other, that this moderate centrist view in the middle is the one to which reasonable people can agree. Yeah. And they discount the fact that the way that politics actually work is driven by how many people are pounding pavement. And the way you inspire to people to pound pavement is by meeting them where they're at, which is to say, offering people solutions to their challenges, making sure that we are putting our public resources into making healthcare a human right, into Meeting the needs of the future and preventing a predictable and preventable climate crisis, uh, putting our resources into liberating people instead of jailing them indefinitely, instead of you know creating racial caste systems, setting up alternatives to incarceration, setting up uh, you know policies that place human rights at the center of our calculus instead of at the margins. Um, and I think the way that we do that is by mounting this case in red districts too, and we should be challenging. Red seats, not just with centrist Democrats that the party is recruiting, but with the bold progressives that our movement is promoting. And I'm proud to be, you know, one of many progressive congressional candidates around the country. And many of us, I certainly am very proud to actively promote the candidacy of our first Jewish president, Bernie Sanders. And the not-me-us means to me not just a a hashtag and a slogan that Bernie has promoted, but it is an invitation to all of us, writ large, Americans, to reclaim our future. And and I think that's how we're going to win Medicare for All and the Green New Deal, is that 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 is an aspiration that we are not unique in sharing. And I think if we take that opportunity to tuscaloosa if we take that opportunity to chattanooga if we take that opportunity to oklahoma city it will sell even in red states and red districts yeah I mean,
0: those people have material needs too they need health care their parents have medical bills like it, this isn't i don't think that like right versus left is necessarily how a lot of people see politics
2: it's at least not how they experience it. Yeah. They might be told to think of it that way. Yeah. And the corporate media is certainly incentivized by the parties to construct that narrative. I mean, that's half the reason Speaker Pelosi has managed to stay in office, is off of this false narrative that left-right dysfunction and gridlock is what inhibits anything from happening in Washington. Yeah, In fact, as King said in the letter from Birmingham Jail, it's not just the opposition of our enemies that ensures this stasis, it is the absence of our so-called friends. And Speaker Pelosi is one of our absent friends who claims to stand on the side of climate justice while impeding solutions to the crisis, who claims to stand on the side of peace and justice while actively funding wars, While who claims to side on the, stand on the side of communities while throwing us all under the bus. And that co-optation of the opposition is, is what we cannot tolerate. And, you know, a co-opted opposition that puts corporate interests before communities is as much a threat to the Republic as a kleptocrat in the White House.
0: Yeah, and I think that a lot of people are becoming conscious of that, which makes me more optimistic. It seems like, I mean, five years ago, it feels like almost everyone I knew, even like the best people were talking about politics solely in terms of Democrat versus Mm. Republican. Mm -hmm. And it feels like people have kind of moved on to recognizing that maybe we need to be a little bit more uh, issue-based and look at what politicians are actually standing for.
2: I mean, I think what you're observing is the impact of Trump on the center. Trump delegitimated the corporate center because he proved, frankly, that corporate Democrats have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) Because if they did, we wouldn't be in this mess.
0: Yeah, I mean, one would hope that that would be the takeaway. But I still think, I mean, like in the the presidential primary right now, it's like you see... so many people arguing for like uh, oh a centrist is going to be the best person to beat Trump and it's like oh you mean like uh, Al Gore you mean like John Kerry you mean like Hillary Clinton I mean I don't know why people want to try this idea so many times I mean I do know why but it's frustrating don't
2: (laughs) underestimate either ignorance or amnesia (laughs) or just timidity I I think a lot of it also relates to uh, people getting their news from television and not understanding again what time it is and I think to anybody who shows up on the street in the United States it's very obvious who the next president's going to be because there is an army of people around the country actively promoting the presidency of Bernie Sanders. Yes. None of the other candidates have anything like it. He's the only Democratic candidate with more donors than Donald Trump. He's the only Democratic candidate with an army of aligned congressional campaigns building the ground game in advance of his campaign in districts from coast to coast. He's the only candidate in the race who has 50 years of demonstrated solidarity with the American people. No one's going to touch him in this race. I mean, you've basically seen a steady succession of centrists that have been weaponized by Wall Street to try to deny him the nomination. At one point, it was Harris. At one point, it was Beto. Uh, you know, the flavor de jour. Then it was Warren. Now the flavor de jour is Buttigieg. Um, you know, Biden had that mantle at one point. And, you know, let's just be clear. I mean, Biden... Biden has no business even being in the race in the first place. The only the only reason he has any,
0: even his wife can't get excited about his candidacy. She it's, was like, "Look, sometimes we got to take what we can get."
2: <laughs> he's. I mean, I don't. don't want to be disrespectful, but like at the end of the day, he,
0: I mean, I kind of do. This is a comedy podcast, but I get it. You're running for office, totally fine. Yeah,
2: you should be disrespectful yeah. if you need to be, but like, yeah, no. I, I saw. You know, he's he supported mass incarceration. He supported bank deregulation. He D built
0: regulation. his whole career on it. Yes. Yeah. Right. He
2: was the right wing edge of the Democratic Party. He was the voice that was brought into the Obama administration to ma- let Wall Street know that Obama was not going to be terribly unfriendly to their interests. And and you could basically say that the co-optation of the Obama administration is Biden's fault to some extent. And now he wants to run on that legacy. The only imp- influence or only lasting legacy of Biden's 2020 campaign will be the destruction of Obama's legacy, which cannot withstand scrutiny of the present moment?
0: No, absolutely not. I mean, I think I don't know. It feels like maybe three years ago, the only people who were talking about how Obama was bad were like professors, and then like
2: the entire movement for Black Lives, yeah, and outside of not a lot of people. Yeah, yes, that's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, but it was more. It was. I was going to say progress, like professors and activists. Yep. But that most people outside of that were like, this is our guy. And it's taken me some reading over the past year or two to understand that a lot of the things that a lot of the progressive goals that his administration had were actually like they were him and Rahm Emanuel and other centrists uh, you know they abandoned them like long before they even brought them to Republicans yeah
2: it was rhetoric over policy yeah and and we settle for rhetoric instead of policy to great peril I mean that's the story of Nancy Pelosi's tenure are you
0: saying that you don't want to heal the country. Yeah, right. <laughs> I hated that in the last debate. <laughs> More like if we're yeah. going to
2: talk about it, yeah. we should actually like show up for no, that exactly. issue. You know? It's
0: just like making, it, it's like just saying all this stuff that like sounds inspiring, but that is not backed up by any yes. action or plans for actions. And it's not even inspiring. I think that people are really starting to see through it. Yes. So what are some of the other issues in your campaign aside from Medicare for All and a Green New Deal?
2: So ending the era of mass incarceration and the era of mass surveillance, challenging these dimensions of authoritarianism we were describing are two central uh, key aims of mine. I want to champion congressional oversight in the face of executive secrecy. It's another dimension. And in the context of the campaign, making this point about Speaker Pelosi's imposition of House rules that deny members of Congress access to staff with security clearance is sort of a key point that the broader body politic doesn't recognize, but plays very much into this theme of wanting to restore a constitutional conscience for Congress. That's ultimately why I'm here. Uh, because we haven't had one in the last generation. Uh, Another is, you know, so these are in the weeds, but I would like to legislate 18-year staggered terms for Supreme Court justices. This is a move that would essentially ensure turnover on the Supreme Court bench without subverting the institution's independence. A lot of progressives have rightfully grown concerned about the court's politicization, particularly in the last year, I thought, The nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the D.C. Circuit in 2006. So, for you know, I've had a long established concern about the independence of the judiciary. And this is another thing, frankly, I'll blame the Obama administration for because I watched him screw the pooch on judicial nominations, abandoning progressive jurists to instead focus on nominating diverse prosecutors, which is like ducking into a right wing punch. And to see the erosion of the independence of the judiciary, its cooptation by capital, by corporations, by the state, and uh, the corresponding loss of the judiciary's ability to defend individual and communitarian rights in any meaningful sense, that's been another object of alarm for me. And that's, unfortunately, the House doesn't have a direct role with respect to judicial nominations, but we can legislate an end-to-life tenure to force turnover on the bench. And so that's the, the part I'm gripping there. Um, Those are a few of the issues. I'm happy to talk about a few others.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about ending mass surveillance, because that's something we've never talked about on the podcast before. And I think that a lot of us kind of forget that it's happening and don't really understand why it's happening. Like, what is the motivation for Democrats to support it?
2: Right. I think it's corruption. When President Eisenhower warned us on national television to fear a military-industrial complex, you know, he located the industrial part of the complex specifically to connote the money that is on the table, the money in campaign contributions and corporate lobbying. He described the military-industrial complex shifting the spiritual character of the United States from every city up to the federal government and it's an incredibly prescient speech to read in retrospect informed by the subsequent history I've written a chapter in a book uh, project Censored's 2017 edition as a chapter I wrote called Ike's dystopian dream and it talks about alright I write about the litany of ways in which his warning came true from not just CIA abuses abroad and domestically but you know the paramilitarization of police the emergence of mass incarceration a complex connecting a set of institutions like private prisons like Taser, which manufactures not just tasers, but also is the leading manufacturer of police body cameras, profiting off of so-called support for <laughs> civil just, rights. I,
0: I was like, oh, no, that's another level. <laughs> In 2015,
2: I wrote <laughs> yeah. an article warning that body cameras were a ruse, you know, yeah. and everyone was clamoring for police body cameras. And if you pay half a lick of attention, it was obvious that that was, you know, police body cameras promise at best transparency, but there's no pretense of accountability. Yeah. And you can get transparency and not get accountability. And frankly, it doesn't make anything better. Eric Garner is my exhibit A for that. You know, you can be killed on camera in video watched by tens of millions of people and still the only person who can go to prison, even though cops are choking someone and killing them without charge or trial, the only person who went to jail from that entire episode was the person who captured it on video. And (sighs) like that is the state of our supposed rights in the United States. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so alarmed as an immigrant. I don't want to let that kind of well, I don't want to let any kind of authoritarianism emerge on my watch, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that you mentioned earlier is that Democrats just voted to reauthorize the Patriot Act. Yeah. Not just Democrats, Republicans as well. But, I, you know, I think a lot of us— have forgotten what the level of surveillance is. And, I mean, I remember when the Patriot Act was first enacted during the Bush administration, and there was a lot of alarm about it. What level of surveillance are we currently living with, just yeah. to put it in perspective? More
2: than any human population in the history of our species, with the possible exception of contemporary China, there in East Germany, the Stasi practiced a form of low-tech monitoring, That we practice here in the United States, particularly through the FBI, at the same time as the NSA is practicing a high-tech form of monitoring, the likes of which the world has never seen, if only because the technology had never been available before. And it's one thing to accept the established regime because we haven't seen it used to a horrendously dangerous effect yet. But I just want to, you know, I would invite anybody who's inclined to think that they can go along to get along or think that maybe they have nothing to fear because they have nothing to hide, what it looks like in the hands of a tyrant, because that's who heads our federal government. And for Congress to hand these kinds of surveillance powers, not to a reasoned, thoughtful administration but one led by an open unapologetic thief
0: yeah and who's to say that he would ever that he would be the worst person necessarily
2: right worst people could get it but we've already seen him try to weaponize foreign intelligence and we're giving him more surveillance powers to weaponize and abuse against dissidents yeah. and journalists here at home. The FBI already currently classifies so-called black identity extremists as threats to public safety. Black identity extremists are include anyone who has taken action in solidarity with the Movement for Black Lives. So if you object to police officers randomly killing unarmed people that makes you an extremist in the views of the FBI... And, you know, many of us remember a history that, unfortunately, I think America is generally lost. You know, we talked a little bit ago about Eisenhower's warning. That was 61. It was about 15 years later that Congress unearthed COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence programs. And this was a 50-year, by some accounts, continuing history— of our national intelligence agencies infiltrating domestic social movements to neutralize their voices. And we know that that history includes a documented campaign that the Bureau orchestrated to try to drive Dr. King to an early death. We know that that campaign included operations targeting the movement for peace in Vietnam, the movement for equal rights for women, the movement for Puerto Rican independence, the movement for uh, uh, Native American rights, white supremacist movements. I mean, the the interesting irony here is it doesn't even matter what you believe. If you believed anything contrary to the dominant order in the United States for the latter half of the 20th century, you were a national security threat, according to our intelligence agencies. That's the preceding history long before Trump Yes. And when you take that baseline and add kleptocracy on top of it with all of the tools for potential fascism around it, and now you have Congress led by Democrats giving surveillance powers without oversight, without any documented security rationale, it is just it is it is incredibly irresponsible, unsophisticated, and it reveals again the, the co optation of the Democratic Party here, you know, not even necessarily just by the corporations, but particularly by this intersection of corporations wall street and the pentagon that is to say the military industrial complex that eisenhower warned us to fear
0: i have a couple questions for you from our listeners okay great okay um we already talked about specific issues i guess real quick what is the issue that you think most will bring new voters to your campaign housing (laughs) housing yeah in san francisco look around
2: we we have a a plank in the platform that particularly relates to reviving federal spending on block grants to states to incentivize the creation of affordable units when property developers are building new developments. And we used to spend as much as $13 billion, that's inflation adjusted to 2016 dollars. That was the high point of the budget for um, the community development block grants. So the year for this was late 1970 77, 78. And it's been under Speaker Pelosi's tenure that the budget for those programs has fallen through the floor uh, by the order of 75, 80 percent. And wow. so now when we deal with an urban housing crisis around the country, it's not just here in San Francisco. It's not just in New York City. It's everywhere. And the roots of it are in Washington. And you know, a lot of people don't recognize that Speaker Pelosi was entirely willing to hurl money at Wasteful, fraudulent, fraudulent, unnecessary military programs. At the same time, that she was abandoning spending on affordable housing. But I think that contrast is very compelling. That you know, we in San Francisco, we don't have affordable housing because Speaker Pelosi wanted weapons instead. Yeah, uh, I think that's a an issue that people here seem to resonate with.
0: Yeah, and it's an issue that has touched the lives of so many people who live here. I mean, I feel like 50% of the people that I'm friends with in this city have been evicted in the past five years.
2: It's funny you should say that. I often say that if I had the chance to run as who I am now with 1990 San Francisco, we'd win this race with my eyes closed and both hands tied behind my back. But because the city's been hollowed out so viciously, uh, it actually does create uh, an uphill struggle. But this, you know, to sort of tie this back to a question you raised about half an hour ago in terms of how we win. The newcomers to San Francisco, they are disproportionately white, they're disproportionately young, and they're disproportionately upwardly mobile. None of them are beholden to the established political order, which is to say, while many of them are disengaged, every single one of them is up for grabs. And that's, yeah. ha- that's one way we're going to win the seat.
0: So is tech going to spend a bunch of money against your campaign?
2: I think tech spending a bunch of money... On our campaign, I mean, the voices of tech differentiate tech companies from tech workers. Yeah,
0: I think I meant tech companies, but not. That's a good differentiation.
2: Yeah, tech companies aren't going to like me very much, but tech workers do. Yeah, and remember, it's tech workers that are leading the struggle. For instance, to keep Google from developing autonomous weapons for the Pentagon, uh, there's tech workers that are fighting the internal fight to try to get Facebook not to monetize the destruction of our democracy by promoting paid political advertisements by lying politicians. It's tech workers who are pressing the line to try to get uh, Salesforce and other companies not to sell their technology to ICE and Customs and Border Protection. These voices of tech workers very much intersect with the voice of our campaign. And I I expect the continuation of, of substantial support from that community. Now, the tech companies, I think, recognize this goes in both directions. On the one hand, voices like mine present a threat to tech companies because, you know, I would favor, for instance, more rigorous antitrust enforcement yeah. of mergers and of acquisitions of their business practices. At the same time, because I'd be somebody who would be fighting the National Security Agency, which hacks these companies to gain access to user data that it can't get through the front door, I'm also defending the companies from the government. So there's a complicated set of interests on the company side. But on the worker side, I think tech workers, uh, as they discover our campaign and come to learn about it, more and more uh, support is coming our way from people who work in the tech industry and recognize the way that their work has been weaponized often against the users of the platforms that they're building.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I have a lot of friends who work in tech and I think are oftentimes pretty grossed out by some of the things that their company is doing, but they have to make a living too, you know? Yeah.
2: It's the nature of industrial complexes. Yes. Right.
0: (laughs) Um, So... Real quick, I want to ask you: How can people get involved in supporting your campaign? What should people be doing at this point if they want to see you unseat Speaker Pelosi, as I do?
2: Thank you so much for the question. Uh, first step: Sign up to join us either as a volunteer or a contributor at ShahidForChange.us. You can follow the campaign on any of the major social media networks at ShahidForChange. Volunteers are plugging into the campaign from coast to coast. And just some of the things that people are doing who aren't here in the Bay Area include data entry, graphic design, uh, help with any number of you know, web-based services, um, photography, editing, video editing, whole, you know, policy formulation, a whole range of opportunities. And then for people who are here on the ground in the Bay Area, we've been uh, doing literature jobs, merchant walks, canvassing. Uh, whole range, phone banking. There's a million ways to support the campaign, and we are eager to invite anybody who shares our concerns about working families or future generations to jump in with us. We need all the support we can get.
0: Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation, and uh, I am very excited about your campaign. Thank you. Right on,
2: sister. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for
1: listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O H. Julia tweets, and Twitter is where you can also find our Reply Guys. They are always with us.
0: Bernie, take us
1: out.
2: As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land-